The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon, Before the Throne of God, this is part three of Revelation chapter four, verses one through 11. As we we began our study of Revelation chapter four, we considered the Lord's purpose or the Lord's intention for giving us a a behind the scenes look, so to speak, into the very throne room of heaven. Um, He has, if you will, pulled the curtain back. (laughs) There is no curtain. It's been rent by the Lord Jesus Christ, but we get a peek behind the curtain, as it were, uh, into the very throne room of heaven. uh, And we've been given this vision of the one who sits upon the throne and of his worship. The Lord has opened a door into the Holy of Holies. And for the benefit of his people, for the benefit and encouragement of his people, the Lord has allowed the Apostle John a glimpse of this heavenly glory. And it's for, if you think with me, it's for the benefit of the Lord's church in the midst of her tribulation. The Lord is, uh, the church is the church militant on earth. Uh, There is the church triumphant. We are the church militant still uh, in the midst of tribulation. It is with many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. And so this vision given to the church in the midst of our tribulation to encourage her. The Lord's concern is the perseverance and the endurance of the church. Her faithfulness as lights atop the lampstands shine in a dark place. The Lord's concern is her faithfulness to her mission, her steadfastness, long-suffering, her perseverance, her endurance in the midst of trial and in the midst of difficulty. So it's, it's easy for us to get caught up in the, the difficulties or the adversity of our day-to-day lives. Um, seemingly, everything in this world seems to be falling down around us, falling apart around us. And often, uh, this world so irrationally hostile against those things that we value most, against the Lord, against his kingdom, against his word, against his people. But all these things are brought to a very near and triumphant fulfillment. All these things will be brought to completion. And the Lord, exalted in glory over the nations, worshiped by the host of heaven, And it's that perspective, the Lord in glory, the Lord sovereign, seated upon his throne, it's that perspective that we need to press forward in the face of difficulty. We face trials and difficulties here, and as as difficult as things seem to be often, this is the vision that we need. We need a sight of the risen and exalted Savior ruling and reigning over the nations. And we need promises and assurances from his word to help us endure. And so these are very effective means that the Lord graciously uses to encourage his church. Now, this perspective that we're given through a text like this in Revelation 4 should also have a significant or profound impact on the way that we worship, should impact our worship. Alan Ross said this, I like this. If we even begin to comprehend the risen Christ in all his glory, or faintly hear the heavenly choirs that surround the throne with their anthems of praise, or imagine what life in the presence of the Lord will be like, then we can never again be satisfied with worship as usual. (laughs) We will always be aware that our efforts, no matter how good and noble, are still of this world and not yet of that one. It should impact our worship. It shouldn't impact the way that we think about our worship. Our worship... If you think about it in in those terms, 
Our worship is a response to revelation. We've been given a revelation of the Lord here in John or in Revelation chapter four of the Lord seated upon the throne, uh, a vision, if you will, of the heavenly throne room. Our worship should be a, an appropriate or a fitting response to divine revelation. The more that God reveals of his person, the more that he reveals of his works, the more that we know him, the more that we see, the more that we understand, the more that we grasp by faith, the more informed, mature, fitting, appropriate our worship then becomes. The more that we should worship in truth, knowing what has been revealed to us. In the heavenly sanctuary, not a word that he speaks will go ignored. <laughs> not, a, not an act, not one act that he performs will pass without adoration, without praise, without glory to his name. There's going to be no one that looks at their watch. <laughs> uh, our worship now must strive must make effort to attain to that worship there. There is a connectedness between the two, and it's visions like this that are intended to inform our worship here to make it more like that worship there. Do you see? It should inform our worship. And that worship is corporate. Charles Bridges said this, the church in her worship is the mirror that reflects the whole effulgence of the divine character it is the grand scene in which the perfections of Jehovah are displayed to the universe. I really like that. The church is to the church in her worship is to reflect the effulgence, the shining forth of the glory of the divine character. That's what our worship is intended to do and is to display that to the whole universe, to the entire cosmos, to the to the entire created order. We are meant in our worship to display or to manifest or to reflect to be a mirror of the glory of God. Nowhere, nowhere does the church more intentionally or more effectually do that than in her worship, her corporate worship. So all that to say then, as we think about Revelation 4 and 5, all that to say we desperately need Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 to help us to inform our understanding. For these visions of John to be impressed upon our minds, to be impressed upon our hearts as we turn to worship the Lord. Now, at the opening of John's vision, he's ushered by the Lord into the throne room of heaven in verse 2. Immediately, John says, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat upon the throne. I love this um, description of the scene in verse 3. This, this borrows from Ezekiel's vision of the same. One commentator said this, his presence scintillating with the brilliance of a diamond, glowing like a carnelian, with the concentrated redness of a furnace, and yet overarched with fresh and living green as of an emerald. Blinding brilliancy, the glowing of a consuming fire, the soft radiance of rainbow promise, these were the contrasted elements in the impression made upon the heart of the seer by the vision of him who sat upon the throne. It's beautiful, right? And you think about that if you, if you meditated on that scene simply from, from verse 2, verse 3, verse 4. Um, as vivid as our imaginations could possibly be, our imaginations are always going to fall short, right? Words just don't suffice. Our imaginations don't, just don't suffice. But we're going to see it one day. 
from the one seated on the throne then in verse 2, John describes the accompanying scene uh, in verse 3 and now in verse 4. Around the throne then were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. John is given the privilege of bearing witness to heavenly worship. It's awesome to consider heavenly worship. John is given the privilege of seeing it, so to speak, given a vision of it. There are, there are various, various explanations in verse 4 for exactly what John is seeing. Uh, many have referred to this, uh, these that are gathered as a heavenly council. The obvious, obvious question raised in response to verse 4 is, who are they? Who are these who are gathered? Now, scholars, commentators, certainly right to take a cue from the symbolic number 24. Again, we come in verse 4 to a symbolic number, a number that uh, literally represents those gathered on thrones around the throne. But that number is significant, and that number points us to something. For that reason, the number is symbolic. There are 24 thrones, but that number signifies and points to something uh, about who these presbyteroi or who these elders may be. Again, we have to remember as we're considering Revelation that John is dipping his pen in the inkwell, so to speak, of prior Revelation, everything that has come before. Revelation is the capstone of the canon. And so what he sees here is a fulfillment, if you will, of prior Revelation. And we know that the number 24 certainly has significance. There's nothing going on here that doesn't have significance, okay? So think with me. These 24 elders, they're clothed in white robes, and they're wearing crowns of gold. The saints are those, aren't they, who are given white robes? And the saints are given a crown of life. The word elder almost always has a human rather than an angelic referent. So we're on safe ground to consider this a human referent rather than an angelic referent. Many see in these 24 elders Old Testament saints identified with the 12 tribes of Israel and New Testament saints identified with the 12 apostles. 12 plus 12 is, yeah, 24. We can find a math major. We can put that together. So in other words, in other words then, the 24 are representative of the, the entirety of redemptive history. Representative of the entirety of redemptive history. 24 elders representing the 12 sons of Israel and the 12 apostles, representing the combined redeemed people of God. There appears to be support for that in the description of the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21. And we won't turn there right now, but there in Revelation 21, describing the New Jerusalem, there are 12 gates engraved with the names of the 12 sons of Israel. And there are 12 foundations engraved with the names of the 12 apostles. So it gives us good support or reason to think that these 24 elders may be the 12 sons of Israel and the the 12 apostles. Also from Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, the Lord Jesus tells the 12 apostles, those who are following him, the disciples, that in the regeneration, which means in the new creation, in the new heavens and the new earth, those disciples will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Right? He promises that to them in Matthew chapter 19. Whatever the case, these 24 are certainly, certainly representative of all the people of God. It's meant to be a representation of the complete body of Christ, the complete church, the complete people of God in the worship of God. It may actually be more applicable or more right to say that we, even now, we are represented there in them. 
they're gathered around the throne in the worship of God, representing the totality of the church, uh, the 12 sons of Israel and the 12 apostles, the entirety of the church. And how does the Lord describe them um, in Scripture, believers who are worshiping God. Listen to these texts, right? Uh, chapter 2, verse 10, in Revelation, chapter 2, verse 10, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life, these 24 elders wearing golden crowns. Chapter 2, verse 26, he who overcomes keeps my works until the end. To him, I will give power over the nations. In other words, they're reigning. Those who overcome reign in the kingdom. It's an awesome thought. We'll talk more about that soon. Revelation chapter 3, verse 4, you have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, of these elders wearing white garments. Chapter 3, verse 11, behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown given a crown. Chapter 3, verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Chapter 3, verse 21, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So this connection, don't we, between the way that saints are described in heaven and the way these 24 elders are described. The word elder, most often referring to a human referent, they're described in their crowns and in their white robes in the way that the saints are described. Number 24 being extremely significant, Old Testament uh, prophets or Old Testament saints, Old Testament sons of Israel and New Testament apostles. And it appears as though that these 24 are those who represent the combined body of the redeemed in heaven. 24 elders rule from 24 thrones even now. You think about that, right? Even now, as we're gathered in worship here, there is a throne room set in heaven. And around the throne of God, in all of that glory, right, that Ezekiel describes as the, the radiance of the outshining of the glory of God, there are 24 thrones. And those 24 thrones, uh, 24 elders representing us, representing the church. The church in heaven, the church on earth, connected together, represented by those elders around the throne. It's glorious. They, ru they rule and reign over an eternal kingdom which shall never be destroyed. That's the reason for the crowns and for the thrones. <laughs> they rule and reign. They rule over a kingdom that has already been inaugurated. That kingdom has already been established. It has already been begun. A kingdom that will never pass away. Their own rule exemplified in the current rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see? The Lord Jesus Christ ascends bodily into heaven and receives the kingdom. His rule begins. He is reigning over the kingdom, and these 24 reign with him. The way that saints are described in white robes and in crowns, ruling and reigning with him. It's a rule and a reign that is already being shared by saints in heaven and already being shared in a particular way by saints on the earth. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. Chapter 1, verse 6 already being shared by saints on the earth. Chapter one, verse six, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and will in the future make a, no, <laughs> but rather he has already made us kings and priests to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Chapter five, verse eight. Chapter five, verse eight. 
Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, those golden bowls, which are the prayers of the saints, they're before the throne of God, offering up the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Revelation chapter five, verse 10, they're describing the earthly rule of the saints. Brothers and sisters, we are represented in them. We are represented in them. You, this is how you are represented here in this scene in the throne room of heaven. You are among the saints on earth. The 24 elders representing the saints, carrying the throne before the throne of God, the prayers of the saints. We are those, Revelation 1, 6, who have been made already kings and priests to our God. And that through the shed blood of our forerunner, who's been raised from the dead, has received the kingdom and rules and reigns even now. Our rule, the kingdom has already begun. Our rule and reign has already begun. Do you see? We reign in him. Now, how is it that we exercise our rule in this present age. We are made kings and priests. How is it that we exercise our rule? We're given authority to bear the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to the nations. That's how we exercise our rule now on the earth as we reign in him. We bear his name to the nations. Look at Ephesians, Ephesians chapter three. Let me give you just an example. Ephesians chapter three. We are given the authority to bear the name of Jesus Christ before the nations. Look at verse 8. To me, Paul says, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And verse 9, to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. We advance the kingdom. How is it that saints rule? Now, we advance the kingdom. We advance the kingdom through the preaching of his word. We advance the kingdom through the... the the running swiftly of the gospel to the nations. We rule and reign over a growing, advancing kingdom. There's certainly an, an already aspect. There's an already aspect to our rule and reign, but there's also a not yet aspect to our rule. We're gonna enjoy the, the full consummated version of that rule uh, in glory. But the rule has begun, and we are of those who rule on earth, proclaiming the principalities and powers, Ephesians chapter three, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we are kings and priests in him. And we go forward with that message. So, so the, the presence of the, the 24 elders in heaven, their presence meant to communicate a connectedness then between the church on earth and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. Right? The church on earth and the spirits of just men made perfect. That, that connectedness communicated through these 24 elders who represent us before the throne, 
Uh, and you can see that in many ways expressed throughout Scripture. Uh, one of the ways uh, that came to mind in thinking about that very connectedness and the, the connectedness of our rule and reign is the authority of the keys in Matthew 18. That uh, in the exercise of our rule and reign on the earth, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have already been loosed in heaven. In other words, there's this connectedness between God who rules in heaven, uh, those who rule in him, Jesus Christ ruling over the kingdom, and the church ruling and reigning here on earth. We are kings and priests to our God. She on earth hath union with God the three in one and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. <laughs> Love that. The church at once, both an earthly and a heavenly body. That's why another reason why our worship here is... Um, not a common thing. We add our voices to theirs. We have mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one as we worship God together. All right, the worship service has already started in heaven. Uh, we're worshiping with them. Now John, and thinking about that now, John then continues his description, verse five. And from the throne then proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. When you think of lightnings, thunderings, and voices, what is it reminiscent of? Sounds like Sinai, doesn't it? Reminds us of Sinai. And a picture, that, that picture of lightnings, thunderings, and voices, later we're going to see added earthquakes. Uh, that picture uh, is consistent with the presence of God, with a theophany. Anytime we see theophanies in Scripture or the presence of God, God shows up in awesome and fearful power uh, and manifested in lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Listen to this from, his, uh, from Exodus chapter 19. Listen. It came to pass on the third day, this is verse 16, came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by a voice. Moses describes the scene in Hebrews chapter 12 that it was so terrifying, the voice of God so powerful that the people pleaded that Moses would speak with them so that God didn't have to. <laughs> Moses himself trembled, his knee-knocking fear. So for John then, the door of the Holy of Holies stands open in heaven, opened by the work of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, and we who have been consecrated to him through faith now because of Jesus Christ may enter into the very presence of God. God who is seated there in power and in majesty, and it's unlike Sinai. So unlike Sinai, under that old covenant, mediated in the blood of bulls and goats, which can never take away sin, the people unable to approach the mountain unless they die, now in Jesus Christ, the God of Sinai can be approached. And we see there uh, saints worshiping him. Verse five, seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. We saw this in reference as well uh, in verse, uh, chapter one, verse four. 
the seven spirits who are before his throne. Again, the number seven there is symbolic. You've got to get used to this uh, notion of symbolism in the Bible. <laughs> symbolism is all over the Bible, in particular all over Revelation. And there is a symbolism to these numbers. The number seven, as we've seen before in chapter one, a reference to the fullness or the sufficiency of the Spirit. The fullness or the sufficiency of the Spirit. The picture of the seven lampstands there in chapter one, drawing from a vision of Zechariah in Zechariah chapter four, and referring to the churches, the seven lampstands, the Lord tells us, are the seven churches. The lights atop those lampstands, representative of the people of God, according to Daniel chapter 12, they shine like the brightness of the firmament, like the stars forever and ever. And so the seven lampstands, representative of the complete church on earth, that number seven, communicating completeness, the entirety of the church, the seven churches addressed in chapter two and three, representative of the same, and the seven spirits of God representing the fullness and the completeness and the sufficiency of the spirit's power and help as the church carries out her mission as lights in a dark place. Do you see? Revelation five gives us additional insight here. Look at chapter five and look there at verse six. And John says, as I looked, And behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. The lamb here having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So here, the picture is that of the spirit of God sent to pour out upon his people the strength and the wisdom of the risen Christ. You see the connection of those images, okay? So in chapter five, the lamb, uh, as though it had been slain, that lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. Horns, a reference to strength. Eyes, a reference to wisdom. The lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. What does the number seven refer to? Fullness, completeness, perfection sufficiency, right? Perfect strength, perfect power, perfect wisdom. And the seven horns and the seven eyes are the seven spirits of God proceeding from the sun into all the earth. So it's a picture, if you will, again, symbolism, a picture of the spirit of God sent forth, proceeding from the son, proceeding from the father, sent forth to pour out upon the people of God, the strength and the wisdom of the risen Christ the one who has seven horns and seven eyes. Do you see? Seven horns, a symbol of complete and sufficient strength. The seven eyes, a symbol of complete and sufficient wisdom. The seven spirits of God, representative of the complete and sufficient supply of the spirit of God in power to his people, the church. Now, to what end? To what end? Well, to supply what is necessary for the church to accomplish her mission. For the Spirit to supply what is necessary for the church to shine as lights in a dark place, to shine atop the lampstands. Necessary for the expanse of the kingdom, for the preaching of the gospel into all the earth, and for the preservation of his people until the work is complete. The Spirit of God preserves us. We are the lights atop the golden lampstands. The lights shining in a dark place are witness to the ends of the earth, supplied with power by the oil of Zerubbabel. We looked at that text prior in Zechariah 4. The sufficiency of the Spirit with all the supply that is necessary to carry out our mission as we build his holy temple. So the sevenfold Spirit supplying the oil whereby the lights atop the lampstand shine forth the glory of the Lord. 
right? Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's a beautiful picture. Now think with me. This is one way in which we can think of this scene in the throne room of God. John has been given a vision of the throne and the one who sits there. John then is given a vision of God's sovereignty, his rule, his reign over the people of God, his people represented there by 24 elders, his people in his very presence, unlike Sinai, and his people supplied by the Spirit. In that picture, now, verse 6, we begin to see God's sovereignty, his rule over the rest of creation. That's God's sovereignty and God's provision for the people of God as we see them in the throne room worshiping. But now we see his sovereignty over the rest of creation. Verse 6, before this throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. Seas in the Old Testament, often in the New Testament as well, often representative of trouble, of danger, of uncertainty, of chaos, of disorderliness, even of death. The sea was often referenced in judgment, the judgment of death in particular, upon the unrighteous, often used in judgment. Revelation 13, the beast comes up from the sea. You can hear a sense of that chaos or uncertainty or disorderliness in the pre-ordered state of creation prior to God ordering it. Listen to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was there hovering over the face of the waters. This disorderliness before God brought order. The sea then often became the stage on which God demonstrated or manifested his sovereign power over creation. It becomes a, a stage, if you will, in which God demonstrates his sovereign judgment upon the wicked. He flooded the earth. He parted the Red Sea, and the Israelites walked through on dry land. He parted the Jordan. They walked through on dry land. There was a, a great sea, literally called that, a great sea before the holy place in the temple, the bronze laver. Uh, and it was through the great sea that the priests had to go before they could approach God in the holy place. The very image, that very image depicted in our own baptism. When we're baptized, it's that picture that's being illustrated there. The water representing, if you will, a separation between God and man, a judgment that he must deliver us through. And the great sea before the holy place, an indication of God's power over all creation. And now, a sea in verse 6, like glass, calm, in other words, where the sea is often depicted as troubled or full of turmoil and uncertainty uh, or chaos, you could say. Here, the sea, calm like glass, clear like crystal. You see the, the contrast? That sea has been done away with. Replaced now by a sea before the throne that is like glass, like crystal. What becomes of the sea in eternity. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, listen. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. <laughs> sea, uh, no more disorderliness. That is entirely gone. No more chaos, no more danger, no more judgment, no more separation. 
We've been fully and finally delivered. We have been saved through the Red Sea of Judgment, if you will, poured out upon our enemies. The sea, now in the new heavens, the new earth, replaced by a river of life that proceeds from under the throne. Revelation chapter 15, turn there just a few pages to the right. Revelation 15. Revelation 15, the wrath of God is about to be poured out in full. And he says this in verse two. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of gold. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God and the song of the lamb saying, incidentally, (laughs) when did the people of God first sing the song of Moses? when they had come through the Red Sea, when they were delivered out of their bondage in Egypt. (laughs) They'd been delivered through the Red Sea on dry land. They sing the song of Moses. And not only that, it's uh, the song of Moses, the servant of God, and it's the song of the lamb. Another indication in Revelation chapter four that those elders who sing the song of Moses and of the lamb, those elders represent Old Testament saints and New Testament saints, right? Uh, The 12 sons of Israel and the 12 apostles. Another indication of that. Here's what they say. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. O King of the saints. One body. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Before the throne, verse six, there was a sea of glass like crystal. Now, in the midst of the throne then, back in Revelation chapter four, in other words, uh, standing very near to it, in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures or created beings full of eyes in front and in back. So you see how we have moved now from describing the one who is seated upon the throne The throne room has been described and those worshiping him have been described, the 24 elders. And now we're we're in um, the realm, if you will, of creation. There is a sea of glass like crystal and now four living creatures, four created beings full of eyes in front and back. What do eyes represent? They represent wisdom. So in other words, these beings are watchful and wise watchful and wise. They see a lot and they're very wise. Here they are full of eyes in front and in back. Verse eight, they are full of eyes around and within. A lot of eyes. Seven, verse seven, the first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf, Uh, better a young bull or an ox, literally what the word means, a young bull or an ox. The third living creature had a face like a man and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. We see the same vision, essentially the same vision, some minor differences. We see the same vision essentially in Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10 of these four living beings, these created beings. The first like a lion. And again, what we have to remember is that we're we're looking at symbolism. This is a vision given to John. These things represent a truth. The first was like a lion. Lions often used to represent rule, majesty, the beast used to to depict Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was a lion. You read through Daniel. And so a lion representing majesty, rule, reign, power over the beasts, the king of the beasts, if you will. 
The second, a young bull or an ox. What do we know about bulls or oxen? They're strong, representing strength, power, possibly. The third, having a face like a man. Man, the apex of the created order, the crown of God's creation. Man is, the, is made in the image of God, uh, a reference to his ability to reason. Uh, the fourth, like a flying eagle, the one that rules the skies. So these four living creatures are given characteristics that equate them with the created order in all of those things that exist in the four corners of the earth, and then with the cherubim and the seraphim. Look at verse 8. The four living creatures, each having six wings, and were full of eyes around and within. We also see these cherubim in the earthly copies that Moses made. Don't we? The, Moses made copies of these cherubim. The cherubim that sit atop the mercy seat. We talked about that previously on the Ark of the Covenant. The two giant cherubim that stand in the back of the, the most holy place where God is said to dwell between them. And so it's, it's best to see these four living beings as agents of God. They're doing his bidding, but representative of the created order, representative of creation, each representing a, a pinnacle of sorts in the order of creation. So what do we have? We have the 24 elders representing the church, four living creatures or four created beings with additional reference, if you will, to the four corners of the earth, right? Representing creation. Why the multiple references to their eyes? They're depicted as essentially made up of eyes. And it may be that as much as they represent creation, they also represent God to his, as his agents to creation. Right, so the eyes signify the divine omniscience. The eyes signify the divine omnisapience. And they're sent forth to do God's will. We find these cherubim guarding the tree of life in Genesis. They are mediating God's judgments in Revelation. They see all things, and they are wise. Again, in, in apocalyptic literature, the symbolism and what they point to is critical, and we're to wrestle with these things. You'll find variations in their description between John's vision here and Isaiah's vision or Ezekiel's vision. And again, they're symbols. So it's not the, the precision of the symbol that we're to take issue with. It's what are they pointing to? What reality, what truth are they pointing us to? And again, we see these, I believe, as agents of God over creation. And it's why these angels are sent forth or these created beings sent forth to pour out God's judgments, for example, in Revelation. We're going to see them again very soon. What do we see them doing here in Revelation 4? Well, together with those representing the church, the 24 elders, we find them worshiping the one who sits on the throne, a worship that we'll consider in our final look at this text next week, if the Lord allows. So what the Lord so graciously gives us, then, through the vision of John, he gives us a glimpse, if you will, of God's glory, a glimpse of his worship. Isn't that what Moses wanted to see? God, show me your glory. I want to see your glory. It's what the people of God want to see. It's um, God's glory depicted upon the pages of Scripture is an encouragement to God's people as we contemplate him, as we meditate on him. Uh, the more that we have our eyes of faith full of the glory of God, uh, the more that we worship him, the more that we praise him, the more that we walk in faith and not doubt, uh, the more that we live for him, 
Uh, the more we see things as they are truly meant to be seen, the more that we see reality. It's a glimpse of God's glory, a glimpse of his worship in the throne room of heaven. And the Lord's intent for this vision is to balance, if you will, the view or our perspective of all those things that are disordered on earth. What we see all around us is disorder. A fallen world, fallen, lost people, God um, disdained, God's word disdained. In our perspective, our faith, our hope, our joy, our worship must be an informed response to revelation. The more that God reveals himself to us, the more that we see the throne room of heaven, the more that we have a right perspective of things as they truly are, as they really are, the more that we understand that, the more that our faith is fueled, the more that our worship is fueled, uh, the more that our faith is bolstered. The vision is to motivate awe and wonder, (laughs) fear, and joy, and adoration, and devotion, and encouragement, and perseverance, and joy, and zeal. We're to see, if you will, with the eyes of faith, and then we are to add our voices to that heavenly council as we worship the one who sits upon the throne. In doing that, brothers and sisters, by the grace of God, we get a little foretaste of heaven, (laughs) a little foretaste of glory. We see how there is this vital and real connection between that worship that goes on in the heavenly sanctuary and our worship in this little building out here in the sticks on earth. (laughs) And uh, it should um, increase our joy and should increase our hope and our faith. And the Lord is gracious in allowing us a glimpse of that from Revelation 4 and 5. We're going to keep working through the text. And I encourage you, um, brothers and sisters, I want, to, I want to meditate on this picture that is given to us in these two chapters, a picture of the greatness of our God, uh, the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that worship that will be our blessed privilege to participate in for all eternity in heaven without sin. And what an awesome uh, praise, uh, what an awesome privilege that will be. So. Pray with me and let's thank the Lord. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for this, uh, this vision that you've given John. You've given us, uh, mediated through John's writing here. And Thank you, Lord, for um, allowing us the blessedness of considering these things and wrestling through them and considering what it is that you uh, intend to convey through them. And there's a blessedness in the wrestling, Lord, and we thank you for it. Uh, I'm grateful to you, Lord, that you've not you know, revealed yourself in Scripture like a, a list of check boxes or an encyclopedia, but rather, Lord, you've given us these uh, grand visions and narratives and uh, wonderful instruction, Lord, and intend through them to build us up in our faith, uh, to assure our hearts of the promises that you've made, Uh, in and through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, with the intention of um, increasing our joy and motivating our faith and preserving us to the end. I pray, Lord, that you would use this vision as a means to encourage your people as we face the disorderliness of uh, this sin, uh, 
fallen world that we live in now and that you would uh, preserve us through it, Lord. Uh, help us through this heavenly vision to keep our eyes fixed on eternal and unseen things in the heavens and not uh, on things of the earth. Keep our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ who rules and reigns. And Lord, that we would uh, pursue uh, our rule and reign in him as we live on this earth. Uh, To your glory, uh, to the praise of your name, we pray these things in the name of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.